0: Let's pray together. His face ever to behold, our glory in my Redeemer. Our Father God, we pray that by your Spirit, you would help us to do that. In the name of Jesus, Amen. Well, as we come now to study the Bible together, let me just uh, begin with a little uh, story. I want you to imagine uh, something with me, if you you will. A lone individual, solitary finger. He's he's bending over a a small desk. Not this massive thing here, but a a, a little desk off to the side. And uh, his head is... Is bent down over it. It's cold, and uh, it's probably somewhere in the winter. And there's a wood fire behind him, crackling. Perhaps you can hear it in your mind. You know the kind of noise the wood makes as it burns. And uh, his study, that's what it is, is not particularly well insulated. And so, as perhaps you've experienced, if you've been in a similar sort of situation, a hut or something like that, if there's a wood fire, you get this occasional blast of warmth coming. Well, in this study, there are books, of course, and they're scattered all over the place. But there's one in front of him, on on his desk in particular, that, that he's staring down at, and his finger is on a particular phrase. And he's tracing it with his finger over and over again. He's got a uh, a hooded cloak on. It's a sign of the zeal for religion which had marked his life ever since he had been caught outside in a storm and been frightened of what would happen to him after he died. And so he's given his life to answer that question and to find eternal security, destiny, happiness. There he is. He's bent over the text. His finger is right there, tracing every single phrase, trying to understand it. His eyes almost boring into the text as he stares. Suddenly he gets it. A little later he described what historians call the tower experience like this. I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred of which I had before hated that word righteousness of God. Martin Luther wrote, Thus that place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. Sweetest word, gate of paradise. It's an interesting uh, little term, isn't it? Sweet, sweetest word. Jonathan Edwards uses a similar phrase. His experience was different circumstantially. He wasn't in a study. He was out in the woods. Edwards loved to walk in the woods and watch the beauty in those forests in New England. Where before Edwards said the sovereignty of God, for him it was that phrase, not the righteousness of God, but the sovereignty of God had been a hateful thing. It was now for him, he said, become sweet. Or well, maybe uh, something similar will happen to us as we look at this famous verse, Romans 1 verse 17. It's page 939 and in the Bibles in front of you, my friends. Let's hear God's sweet word. For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, as is probably fairly obvious, this is part of a series of statements that Paul is making in the first chapter of Romans. And uh, I just need to set the context for you so you can place this particular sentence appropriately in its surroundings. So in verses 1 to 7, he has told uh, the Roman Christians uh, in summary form the gospel. He has said... Uh, Jesus is King, Son of David. The resurrection has declared that he is the Son of God. He is king, and we are now people of this risen king, verses one to seven. And then verses eight to fifteen he describes how because of this, he is eager he's passionate. he 's passionate, he wants to preach the gospel to them who in rome it 's driving him with passionate zeal and then verse sixteen, he begins to describe and explain why that is. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now it comes to verse 17. It's a further explanation of the same thing, why he's not ashamed, why he is glorying in this gospel, why for him it is sweet. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul is explaining again with a further reason, a further development of why it is that he is not ashamed of the gospel, why it is that he's going all around these different places, these different towns and proclaim the gospel, why he wants the Romans too, to glory in the gospel. What is the rationale for this? What is the motivation for this? Well, he described that in verse 16, and now he's describing it further in verse 17. For in it, it's an explanation of why he is unashamed. And he has three motivations here in this verse 17. First one is this, a right view of the gospel. For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. People have many different views of what the gospel is and what it uh, has contained within it. For Paul, in it, in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed. Revealed. So we are to glory in God to find Him sweet by a right view of the gospel. The gospel is not only the power of God, how God wins, it's also the righteousness of God, how God makes people righteous. Uh, actually, this specific phrase, the righteousness of God, only occurs three times in, uh, in Romans in three different locations. And uh, it's, it's important to understand those two other places in order to grasp what Paul is saying by the righteousness of God. So look with me in Romans chapter 3 verse verse 21. Romans 3 verse 21. I'm just getting a little warm. I used to say I'm getting a little hot, and then my wife said that's not appropriate to say from the pulpit. <laughs> uh, Romans 3 verse 21. Can you see that text there? Paul says this, but now the righteousness of God is explaining this key phrase in church history and key phrase in the Bible, has been manifested. It's a past tense now, whereas it's a present tense in in chapter 1, because in chapter 3 he's referring to the cross. Where is the righteousness of God shown? It's shown at the cross. And now it is revealed every time it is preached, is being revealed now. So Paul says similarly to the Galatian Christians, Jesus Christ was displayed, portrayed, as crucified, before your eyes. In other words, as he preached. It is being revealed. This moment, as we look at this text, is an eternal moment of significance that God, by his Spirit, has designed that this righteousness of God would be revealed to me and to you now. Why? Because it has been manifested, chapter 3, verse 21, at the cross, has been manifested, apart from the law, The law and the prophets bear witness to it. The whole Bible points to this death and resurrection of Jesus. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. What is this righteousness and how do we get it? Verse 24, it is a gift. So God's righteousness for us is a gift. It is how God makes people righteous. Now look with me at the other place where Paul uh, fills out what he means by the righteousness of God in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 10 and verse 3. And there he distinguished the righteousness of God from human righteousness, works righteousness, how humans try to appear righteous by their own effort or religious attainment. So Romans 10 verse 3. Not, Not human righteousness, the righteousness of God. It's a distinction. He writes there, Romans 10 verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So God's righteousness then is distinguished from our own righteousness. Now obviously Romans 9, those of you who know Romans well will know that Romans 9 through to 11 is an extremely complicated part of the Bible and part of Romans, and there have been many great preachers who have preached throughout Romans up until the end of chapter 8 and then stopped. Uh, I intend to go through Romans right towards the end. If I get to 120, we'll get to verse chapter, three, uh, chapter 10, verse 3. If I get, you know, we'll get there in the end. Right now, I'm not trying to explain those whole two, chapter, two chapters or so. I'm just trying to help you understand the principle that Paul's alluding to there. It's the righteousness that comes from God, this righteousness, in contrast to their own righteousness, human Righteousness. Not our uh, righteousness, God's righteousness. So it's a righteousness that is given by God, and it's how God makes people righteous before Him as compared to our own attempts to be righteous, which fail because we are sinners, you and I. The media, the uh, TV entertainment complex wants to sell us various things and continually and constantly says that basically we're okay basically we're morally fine I'm not here selling you something I'm here to tell you the truth we need God's righteousness because our own righteousness will fail and it's on offer this morning the righteousness of God is being revealed now, those of you who studied Romans or read the literature, or at least some of the literature on righteousness of God will know There's so much of it, it is almost unmanageable, but actually it's not that complicated. You need to understand that the righteousness of God, the word righteousness, is primarily used in relation to the Old Testament use of the term where it is predominantly a legal term. So it is someone being declared righteous by a judge in a court of law. That's its predominant meaning. It's also important to clarify the right here, as the power of God is the power that comes from God, so the righteousness of God is the righteousness that comes from God. You say, well, why does Paul express it in this kind of way? Because he's trying to distinguish between the righteousness of people versus the righteousness of God. This is God's righteousness given to us by grace through faith as he declares us righteous. There are complications here, complexities that have to be explained. There's an unmanageable amount of secondary literature and discussion on these few verses, but essentially it's simple. Look at it like this. Say you are going to have uh, some health need addressed, and you get to the hospital, and a person walks in the door and lets you know that they'll be practicing on you. Well, that doesn't sound too encouraging, and so you ask them about their medical degree. And, well, you find out that they have been working for some time in medicine, and they have been practicing on many different individuals for a number of different years, but actually they do not have a a, a true bona fide MD. They're not really a doctor at all. Well, that is works righteousness. Righteousness. Works Righteousness is saying the way you get righteous is by doing it and trying it and putting the effort in. It's like the Huckster pretend doctor who reads a lot of the material on internet forums but is not trained or qualified as an actual MD. This righteousness of God is the other way around. So say instead, you go to that hospital and someone walks in, perhaps uh, he looks a little young to you, it's the first sign of getting old, they say, doctors and policemen start to look young. And maybe you wonder a little, you ask about their qualifications, and you find out the person has a real MD, and from a, you know, first-rate uh, university, not the Institute of Surfing, but, uh, you know, from Chicago, whatever would be a good place to have an MD, I, I don't know, Chicago, would that be Okay maybe not, I don't know. <laughs> Some school you really like, Wheaton or something like that, I don't know. And, and you, you, you know, they may look a little young to you, but they've been, they've been they're out of medical school, they've done their residency, they've been practicing successfully for a number of years. That, that's the righteousness of God. It starts with a right status and then leads to right practice rather than the other way around. You see, of course, once we see that, it makes us bold and passionate and committed about this gospel and ashamed we have a right view of the gospel. It's not about whether we're extroverted or introverted, our enthusiasm for Christ and for this gospel, any more than if you recommend a good doctor. It's a sign that you're an extrovert. It's because of the nature of this righteousness that is revealed in the gospel. You can have a right standing before God. Well, Paul gives another reason for the motivation to be unashamed of the gospel in this verse and have this sweetness of God, not only a right view of the gospel, but also, second, a right view of faith. Paul's getting very bold with his writing now. Can you see what he says? It is from faith to faith. He doesn't leave much room for anything else. Now, each time Paul mentions faith, we have to bear in mind his definition, verse 5, the obedience of faith. And our understanding of that, which we call trustingly submitting, and that's different from just, you know, saying you're a Christian and believing something as mental assent and agreement. No, it's actual trustingly submitting to Jesus as the king, as your king. So this isn't just more and more religion, but more and more of grace, faith, Christ, transformation by the Holy Spirit, And Paul's been very bold about this. This righteousness of God is faith to faith, nothing else. Now, there are various different ways that people try to understand uh, this phrase. Let me try and explain them to you. Some have said that from faith to faith is from the faith by which the Old Testament believers were saved to the faith by which New Testament believers are saved. That was an ancient interpretation And it would tie in with verse 16, to the Jew first and to the Greek, showing how across the Bible we're always saved by faith. That's possible, I suppose. Others, though, say that from faith to faith is the equivalent of going from strength to strength. They would point to Psalm 84, verse 8, which in the Greek version of the Old Testament indicates uh, that uh, it is uh, what Paul is saying here means something equivalent, for it's the same grammatical expression. He would be saying then uh, going from a confession of the faith as a newcomer to Christ to growing in faith, that the way on by, with Christ is the way in to Christ, going from strength to strength, from faith to faith. That's possible too, I think. Others still would say that, no, and instead so this phrase from faith to faith means just an intensity of expression or emphasis. They would point to the other place where Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 16 where he says there that uh, there we are the aroma of death on the one hand and the aroma of life to the other, literally from death to death, from life to life. And most people would then say that's and rhetoric of, uh, of emphasis, he's saying, you know, death to death, life to life, he's emphasizing it. And so then they would say, here, he's saying not just faith, but faith upon faith, N- faith and nothing but faith, you see. Well, that's certainly possible too. Others would say that uh, from faith to faith, Paul is, uh, standing against any kind of synergistic view of salvation. That is, Paul is saying, we do not start with faith and then go on to works, But it's always faith right through to the end. That has some uh, possibility and merit behind it as well. Uh, As far as I can see, all those explanations uh, have uh, some um, possibility and could well be accurate. Uh, No one's ever accused me of lacking boldness from the pulpit, I think, and you'll probably take me seriously when I say I suspect all of them have uh, some insight. There are other views that I could list that certainly I would disagree with, but I suspect those who know what they are here this morning probably already disagree with them, so there's not much point mentioning them, I don't think. Why do I say Paul's being very bold? Because the phrase from faith to faith, with the slightly different ways of looking at it that people have, is clearly underlining faith. There's no room for anything else here. Actually, faith is mentioned in these two verses four times. God is only mentioned twice. Righteousness only twice. And the gospel, which is the topic of the paragraph, is also mentioned only twice. But faith comes four times. He is clearly emphasizing it. I had a conversation with someone recently that uh, made me aware again of how important this emphasis is. Oftentimes people have questions about God. They have doubts. I I have had my doubts too from time to time. I came up with this approach. Every time I would have a doubt or a question about God, I would write it down. I wouldn't hide it. I would write it down on a piece of paper and stare at it and try and answer it right there and then. Most of the time I would come up with a decent answer. If I didn't, I'll wait for a little bit and try again, and usually within a couple of weeks I had a good answer. I can cross it off my list. If I still couldn't figure it out after a month or so, I'd go and talk to an older Christian and get some insight. Most of the time that was, that was answered. After a year or two, I'd find that 95% of my questions were answered. That, I thought, was something I could bank upon because I'm not even 95% sure I'm alive, you know. People say that faith is at the opposite end of the spectrum to doubts or questions. I haven't found that to be the case. Faith is at the opposite end of the spectrum to instability. Faith is trustingly submitting to what we know is true when we feel it is not, when we feel it is not. Apparently, airplanes are still the safest form of travel. Faith is holding on to that fact even when there is turbulence. It's not irrational. It's reasonable. But it's opposed to instability when we don't feel it's the case. God is utterly trustable. And faith is holding on to him whether we have full hands or empty hands this morning when there is turbulence. It all starts with Jesus, doesn't it? He was a real historical figure. There are No reputable historians who would doubt that Jesus truly existed. The Gospels are normally thought to be fairly historically reliable. Those who disagree with them disagree with the miracles for philosophical reasons. You come across Jesus in your face with his claims and the things that he did. And if you decide that you trust him, you put your trust in him, then you begin to follow what he asks you to do and to believe, even when not always does it make sense. You're moving from faith to faith. The ancient Christians called it credo ut intellegam," faith seeking understanding. From faith to faith, nothing but faith. Faith alone is a perfectly reputable paraphrase, I think. And so this God begins to become again sweet. You're no longer running away from Him, thinking to yourself, what can I do, which I am allowed to do and still count myself within the category as a Christian? That's not how you approach something when it's sweet. A bee is attracted to the sweetness of honey, and God becomes for you like ice cream without any calories, sweet. You want to be close to Him. You want to have His pleasure over your life. Yours is the obedience of faith. You're trustingly submitting. You are qualified in God's eyes with His righteousness. It's not a legal fiction, by the way, any more than someone who is acquitted by a judge to go free has experienced a legal fiction. And so you are free and not ashamed, and you have renewed passion, and the gates of paradise begin to swing open. Still, there's one issue uh, more that many people have, which is, is this really what the Bible says? And so Paul addresses that issue lastly. A right view of the gospel, a right view of faith, now a right view of the Bible. Look at with me at the end of verse 17. Famous quotation we've mentioned already, but we need to understand it. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith." It's a quotation from Habakkuk: uh, "I've been now in America long enough, and I'm no longer sure how you pronounce things here as opposed to how you pronounce things over there. Is it Habakkuk or Habakkuk or Habakkuk or something I don't know) <laughs> I get so confused now. My children pronounce things differently from our, I do. The way, well, the way I do, and uh, there we go. So Habakkuk. It's a quotation from Habakkuk. The book of Habakkuk uh, is, is quoted here in Galatians, and again by the author of Hebrews. Many people wonder whether Paul is fairly quoting the passage or misusing it, and so we need to dive into that briefly. In Habakkuk, the prophet, about whom we know very little, was writing regarding the coming Babylonian triumph over Israel, and it recalls the amazing specter of the prophet questioning God's wisdom. How could it be that God would allow wickedness to go unchecked? How could it be that God would allow Babylon, the evil empire, to rise to such power and significance? Perhaps you have those questions about things going on today. Habakkuk will be a good book for you to read. And he complains. To God. And God answers and he concludes with a prayer. In the midst of the book there's this oracle which Paul quotes. Actually there in Habakkuk God tells the prophet to make this vision, this revelation so big that a man running past it could not fail to miss it. So large that someone driving at 70 miles an hour down a highway could still read it. It's that important. And then he's told to wait for its full meaning will come apparent later. Now, obviously, Paul was writing in a very different time about a very different set of issues. As we've seen, Paul was writing from Corinth about AD 57, house of one called Tertius, probably, on his way back to Jerusalem, collecting money for the poor Christians there to alleviate their poverty and to express their unity between. Jew and Gentile and Christ, and he's writing to Rome to give them a solid foundation so they could be a reliable sending base for global mission, the expansion of the gospel, and in particular his next step to Spain, as, as he hoped uh, would uh, come to pass. Habakkuk and Babylon are far in the distant past. But while the context is entirely different, the principle, the oracle, the vision, the revelation given to Habakkuk is exactly to be applied. Then and indeed now, the righteous shall live by faith. See, Habakkuk, what you think of as righteousness, the moral and religious activity of humans, is not sufficient. I require greater righteousness than that, and it comes by faith. It's my righteousness that I give according to my will, my grace. See, Paul, the obedience of faith, that's what I mean by faith, and it's By it is received righteousness. By that the righteous shall live. Look, Habakkuk, trust me, and you will receive your righteousness from that, as will anyone else of whatever race or kind, Babylonian or Jewish. You, uh, Paul writes, you Romans, trust God and you receive his righteousness. It's not by law or works, but faith that is trustingly submitting, and that faith is how the righteous shall live. The two other places in the New Testament where it's quoted are different again. The situation in Galatians, circumcision, radical departure from the gospel through a new look at Jesus and adding to him necessary law. The situation in Hebrews, different again. Jewish Christians facing potential persecution even to the extent of shedding blood, wanting to go back from Christ and avoid persecution by hiding in the synagogue again, being told they need to stick with Christ and have faith in him and therefore live. And the Romans, they need to get this principle right so they could proclaim the gospel to themselves, that there would be harmony between Jew and Gentile and therefore be a reliable sending base for their neighbors of whatever race or kind. The just shall live by faith, not by race or law or works. Same principle, different applications. And the situation is different again today. One university where I spoke, I was told uh, by the students there of a particular professor who, who did this at the beginning of his classes to incoming freshmen. He picked up what was obviously a Bible, and he got the attention of the class and said, now, those of you who are Christians, you say the Bible speaks, don't you? Is that right? Picked up the Bible, threw it on the ground, and said, can you hear it it's not saying anything the Bible doesn't speak what nonsense it's a rather extreme practice but he's expressing the reaction of a thousand million people in response to what they've been told a thousand million times the Bible gets old after a while. Just a collection of stories. What you really need from church is something completely different. Don't give me the Bible. <laughs> Someone told me this week, this week that they've been to so many churches, and College Church is one of the few churches that actually opened the Bible. Can't you give me brighter lights or, 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 or something more kind of, you know, the Bible? Really? <laughs> Doesn't speak. What if it did? What if now... We get a right view of God from a right view of the gospel, a right view of faith, a right view of the Bible. What if now, bending over this passage, our heads so close that almost by force of will was it faith, the gates of paradise swing open. So how does that apply to my situation? Well, maybe you are suffering like Habakkuk. Maybe you're complaining about it like Habakkuk did. What on earth are you doing, God? Who do you think you are? Sent me to this place and now look what's happened to me. I've done all the right things. The righteous shall live by faith, Habakkuk. Perhaps you're facing opposition at work. You don't work for a Christian firm. You work uh, with non-Christians, and they tease you. Holy Joe, they say. Off to church again, are you? (laughs) Standing up for the rights of the unborn child, are you? How ridiculous. No one does that kind of thing anymore. Only one way to God? Not careful. I'll give you the fast track to Jesus. (laughs) Opposition from an empire as pagan, as the Roman Christians faced. You can trust me. The righteous shall live by faith. Perhaps it's a test paper or an exam. You're feeling the instability of your emotions. You're not quite sure how you're going to survive. God is reliable. The righteous shall live by faith. Perhaps it's a bill that has to be paid. The righteous shall live by faith. Oh, sure, you've got to work and do the normal things of life, but you can trust God to provide for you and shepherd you through that experience. The righteous shall live by faith. Person who needs to be forgiven. You know, the funny thing is that every single one of us does. The gospel's always real, isn't it? You and I have hated and hurt. and wish that we were God, not God, was God? And that's true. And so we come in those doors on Sunday, every Sunday morning, a little whisper comes in our head, and it says, what right do you have to come to church? The righteous shall live by faith. His righteousness, not yours. From God as a gift to you. And that makes it sweet. Let's pray together. God, we uh, thank you that it is the righteousness of God, from God, not ours, and we pray that uh, we would trust you for that, and so live in a way unashamed of that gospel, bold, confident, committed. Sensing your sweetness. And we pray this in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.